Well, good morning. He is risen. You know, that never gets old, does it? So, uh, my name is Mark Bates, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's uh, my privilege to welcome you here on Easter Sunday, a Sunday that is filled with hope. Uh, we are people who are addicted to hope. We, we have to have hope. We, we live all of our lives with hope. When you're little, you hope to make good grades, maybe hope to make the team. When you are in school, you hope to get out of school and get a job. When you get a job, you hope to make enough money to retire from that job. Uh, later on, you might, at some point in your life, you might want to get a house and uh, have a spouse for the house, and then you want kids for the house. And now that you've got kids in the house and the kids get grown, what do you hope for then? Kids get out of the house, right? Uh, now, we are, we are always hoping for something. We are, are people that, uh, that are addicted in many ways to hope. We never grow out of hope. But there's some eras that are more hope-filled than others. Right after the War of 1812, there was such a sense of national unity and purpose that that era was called, from 1812 to 1825, the era of good feelings. What do you think they'll describe our era today as in the future? <laughs> era of good feelings probably is not what comes to mind. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that we are living in a time when we are greatly in need of hope. A uh, number of studies, uh, one uh, by uh, the uh, uh, Johns Hopkins Universities, uh, shows that depression and anxiety are up among all age groups, but particularly among teenagers. Among teenagers, depression and anxiety has risen by 40% over the past decade. And it's not just teenagers that are struggling with depression and anxiety and a, and a deficit of hope. Uh, many adults are. In fact, for the last 100 years, life expectancy in the United States has increased dramatically every year until the last three years. And two Princeton economists have looked at this and studied why, and they said that we are suffering from what they call diseases of despair. And this has actually resulted in a decrease in life expectancy in the United States. The diseases of despair are drug abuse, alcoholism, and suicide. It's actually affecting life expectancy in our country. We are a people who are losing hope. Uh, we live in a remarkable age of technology and science. Now we have every song on the planet at your fingertips with just a click, thanks to Spotify. You have every question you can ask can be answered by Siri and by Google. But technology cannot answer the most fundamental questions, the most basic question, and that is why. Why am I here? Where am I going? The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, if there was nothing eternal in man, he could not despair. If there's nothing eternal in man, he could not despair. If you're just a bundle of appetites and desires, then life would actually be rather simple, but you're not. Because God has said that he has created and placed eternity in the heart of man. It is in you, it is in me, and we all know it. And because eternity is in our hearts, we are people who need hope. We are desperate for it. We know that we're made for something more. You are made for more than this. You are made for something eternal. You are eternal. And so where do we find hope? Where do we find hope? Well, Easter is all about hope. But the reality of the hope at Easter is based on a true historic event 
that leads us to a certain future. And it's grounded in this historic reality that leads us to the certain future. Because of that, let's begin by looking at, at the, the reality of the resurrection. Because this is the basis of our hope. The Apostle Paul said, if the resurrection is not true, we're to be pitied among all men. We are the most pitiful of people. But he's going to give us the hope of the resurrection. So what's the hope of the resurrection? Now, whether you believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead or not... It, it is inescapable that something happened 2,000 years ago. Something happened 2,000 years ago because 2,000 years ago, there were a band of, of, uh, uh, of slaves and peasants who had no economic power, no social power, no political power. And yet, within 200 years, this small band became the dominant force in the Roman Empire within two centuries. Roman Empire was falling apart so much so that, that the emperor conceded it was a Christian empire because the Christians were holding it together. So why did this happen? Something had to have happened. And so Luke and the other New Testament writers claim that it all began with the resurrection of Jesus. That is the claim. Now this claim, we can do three things with this claim. There are only really three options. And so if, if you rule out two, then it must be the third. But here's the, the three options. Number one, it could be, it could be the disciples were mistaken about the resurrection of Jesus. They believe he rose from the dead, but, the, but they were wrong. They could have been wrong about that, right? It could be the disciples were lying about the resurrection of Jesus. That's a possibility, that they made the whole story up. Or the third possibility is Jesus actually rose from the dead. I mean, those are our three options. There are no other options. Either they're mistaken, or they lied, or it actually happened. So let's take these in order. Uh, first of all, let's look at the idea that the disciples were mistaken. Well, it could be, one way that they could be mistaken is that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. This is called the, the swoon theory, that Jesus on the cross was suffering from being tortured on the cross, and he simply passed out. They mistook him for dead. They placed him in the tomb, and within a few days, he was able to recover enough to get up and to walk around. Now, there's some plausibility to this, right? People have been mistaken for dead before. Uh, that would not be, be, be the first time uh, that someone has been mistaken for dead that was not truly dead. But all the writers not only claim that Jesus died, but they claim to present evidence to that truth, that he was truly dead. For example, uh, they all say that Jesus was executed by the Roman soldiers by crucifixion. Now, the Roman soldiers were, were experts at the art of torturing people to death. They, they knew what they were doing. Roman soldiers knew how to put someone to death. But let's just say, you know, you know theoretically possible that they messed this one up and they actually he was not quite dead yet, okay? He's not dead yet, and they didn't know it. Uh, that is possible. You could have a botched uh, crucifixion, but not in Jesus' case. Because John says when, uh, that he was hanging from the cross to make sure that he was dead, one of the soldiers took a spear, ran it through his side, and blood and water comes flowing out. And what that means is that the spear actually pierced his heart, pierced the pericardium, that, that sac that protects the heart, so the blood and water comes flowing out. Now, with that, a stab wound through the heart, there is no chance of survival. There is no hope for recovery. Jesus was dead if the witnesses are telling the truth. Well, the other idea 
Another theory is that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, but the disciples had some sort of spiritual experience with Jesus. They had a, an ecstatic experience. They thought they saw Jesus, and they're talking about this, uh, this metaphorical resurrection because they simply encountered the spiritual Jesus. And, and this is, in some sense, based on what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery is this. Ancient people weren't as smart as modern people. Uh, ancient people were naive and uh, superstitious, and so they would believe things like people could rise from the dead, but we're modern people, and we know, I mean, we know dead people don't come back to life. Well, the truth is, ancient people knew dead people too. They did not believe in resurrections any more than, than, than modern people believe in, in resurrections. Uh, sure, uh, some people have been declared dead, right? So people have been declared dead only to be resuscitated. Uh, their breathing stops, their heart no longer beats, and they're resuscitated. And they're, they're, we would say they're brought back to life. But, but that's hardly a resurrection. You know, when a, the heart stops, within 10 minutes, the brain dies. It, it is dead after 10 minutes. Within two to six hours, rigor mortis sets in. And even in all of our days of technology, you're not bringing back a body with rigor mortis. Uh, you know, despite the walking dead, doesn't happen, right? Uh, and so, so death comes in uh, and, and there's no hope for recovery. And that is why when Jesus appeared in the room, the disciples, because they know dead people don't walk, they know that, just like we know that. When Jesus appears in the room, notice what they think, according to Luke. They think he's a spirit. Because obviously he was dead, and therefore it can't be him, and so they must be seeing a spirit. So how does Jesus respond to their, their belief that he's a spirit? He gives them empirical evidence to the contrary. He says, look, use your eyes, look at me. See my hands, see my feet. You know, ghosts don't have hands and feet. Spirits do not have wounds where the nails were there. And then he says something I think is the most interesting part of this account. He says, do you have anything to eat? Don't you find this interesting? Of all the things Luke can tell us about this dinner, you know, he, he doesn't tell us who all was there. He doesn't tell us all the things that Jesus said. Wouldn't you love to know everything that Jesus said at this dinner? Instead, Luke gives us the menu. And, and he says, Jesus asked for something to eat. And they... Uh, who was the, can you imagine being this disciple and going, um, have some fish, right? And Jesus takes the fish and he eats it. What's the point? Ghosts don't eat fish. Hallucinations don't eat fish. If, if there's a, a ghost there and then you have fish bones at the end, it wasn't a ghost. The fish bones on the plate are, are proof that Jesus was truly there. And so, so the, the obvious point is that Jesus is physically present. So if Jesus actually died and he actually was present, then the disciples are saying, we did not have a hallucination. This was not an ecstatic experience. We have the physical evidence to the contrary. Jesus rose from the dead. So, so that's the, they can't be mistaken. Now, they could be lying though, right? That's our second option. They could have made up the whole story. They could have found it inspirational. And so, so let's look at that. The disciples lied. Well, the first problem with believing that the disciples lied is the problem of the empty tomb. For critics to disprove Christianity uh, and to disprove the resurrection, it would have been quite simple. Here's the body. Here's the body. And yet the body was not there. 
the Christian movement could have been stopped from the very beginning. Now, some would say that they stole his body. In fact, this was a rumor that began at the very beginning. But the gospel writer Matthew tells us that, that Pilate actually ordered that Jesus' tomb be sealed and they placed guards at the tomb. So now what we have is that the, the, the disciples stole the body that was guarded by Roman soldiers. Now, see if this doesn't strain credibility a bit. Uh, that, that the disciples, these men, who were so fearful that they would not even watch the crucifixion, the apostle Peter, who was so terrified that he would not even admit that he knows Jesus, just a, a few days later would actually show up at the tomb, overpower the Roman soldiers to steal Jesus' body. Now, do you think Peter and the apostles would do this, seeing their cowardly actions in the past? If they did try it, do you think they could have gotten away with it? Roman soldiers versus fishermen. I'm putting my money on the soldiers. Uh, so, so that doesn't seem uh, very likely. But a second problem with the theory that the disciples made up the story is the way the story of the resurrection is told. Now, if the disciples were going to make up a myth about the resurrection to start this religious movement of which they're going to be the leaders, they would not have told the story in this way. First of all, notice how the disciples are portrayed. The women are seen as courageous, believing, faithful. What are the men like in this account? Cowardly and skeptical. Cowardly and skeptical. The future leaders of the church, the very people who supposedly made up the story, are portrayed as, as skeptical cowards. Now, if you're one of the apostles, and say particularly Peter, would you create a fictional account to start a new religion where the story would have you looking like a bumbling, cowardly buffoon? That's not how we typically make up stories. Typically, when we make up stories, we make up stories so that we look pretty good, right? Uh, we don't say, follow me, I've messed up everything else in my life. Uh, and yet, that's what we find the apostles doing here. The other problem, too, is uh, in the ancient world, women were not considered to be fit witnesses even for court. Uh, the sexism of the day meant that women had very little credibility. Yet the gospels place women in a starring role. They are the key witnesses. The only reason, the only reason the gospel writers would have for writing the account in this way with the men as cowardly buffoons and the women as courageous eyewitnesses is that's how it happened. There's no other reason to write it this way. And a third reason why it is not believable that the disciples invented the story of the resurrection is how they lived afterward. Before the resurrection, they're full of fear. They're hiding. They're afraid. After they see the risen Christ, they go around the world proclaiming that he is risen. Despite the fact they're ostracized by their community, they're beaten, they're imprisoned, and eventually they are martyred. Now, if they had been making up the story, all they had to do to avoid this suffering was just kidding. Just kidding, but they don't. They go to the grave. Is it reasonable to believe that these men would have died for something they knew to be alive? Would you make up a story that makes your life worse rather than better? Parents, when was the last time your kids came home and they said, instead of getting an A on the test, they said, actually, I failed it? They don't do that. When you lie, you lie to make yourself better. You don't lie to make yourself worse, yet for the disciples, the story of the resurrection made their life measurably worse. So the only explanation is that they're not lying and they weren't mistaken, 
Then the third option is they're telling the truth. There are only three possibilities. And if it's not one and it's not two, it must be three, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And so if that is true, if our, our, our three points there are true, then that leads us to another question, is why does it matter? Why does it matter? And this leads us to the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. And so, and so we're here today, and you're dressed up, by the way, you look great. Uh, and we're here today as we're gathered for the, the celebration, and we're here singing songs of joy, even though we're living in a broken world. What is the hope that this gives us? Well, the first hope that this gives us is this hope for a new world. The fact that Jesus rose bodily from the dead is evidence that we too will rise bodily from the dead. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. In Colossians, he says Jesus is firstborn among the dead. And saying that he is first means, means two things. One, he is preeminent. He is first in, in priority, first in order, but he also uh, first chronologically. If there's a first, you know, you don't say first if there's only one. You say first if there's more than one. That means there's going to be more. And so that what scriptures teach is that because Jesus rose from the dead, that all those who are in Christ will rise from the dead as well. But that's not all. Not only will those in Christ rise from the dead, but it teaches that not only is he making us new and giving us new, beautiful, glorified bodies, but he's making the world new as well. Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. He doesn't say, I'm making all new things. He says, I'm making all things new. Now, can you imagine what this world is going to be like when Jesus makes it new? You know, can you imagine when this world, with all of its brokenness, is simply full of beauty? One of the frustrating things about the life that we live in this world is we do live in a world that is beautiful but broken. And that beauty that we experience in this life is a source of joy and it's a source of frustration, the beauty. Because, because when we look at the beauty, it gives us great pleasure. But also when we look at the beauty, we, we think this is how it ought to be. This is, this is what family life ought to be like. This is what healthy living ought to be like. This is what, what communal life ought to be like. But then, but then the brokenness of this world taints every aspect of it. Death stains everything. It stains everything. And so because of that, we, we look at the world and, and we're frustrated because, because we can imagine what it would be like if sin and evil and brokenness were not so pervasive. You know, it's, it's like when you see someone who is beautiful and talented and smart and has, has so much potential in their life. And yet they squander it away with addiction and bad choices. And, and, it, and those are the ones that are so frustrating because, because you think you could be so much more than this. Don't you see the beauty? Don't you see the potential? And yet evil just continues to bring it down. And the same way we look at the world, we look at creation, and we see the beauty, but we see how evil stains everything. I mean, here's where life is a tease. It tells you that if only you can get the next thing, you will be happy. And, and, and the promise is believable because we see the beauty in it, the reality of it. But the reality is when you get the next thing, you find out it's just as broken as your last thing. So when you're in school, you can't wait to get out of school. When you get a job, you can't wait to get a better job. When you get a better job, you can't wait to retire. When you retire, you wish you had the body you had when you were in school and the money you had when you were working. And, and you're always longing for these things and you have these hopes, and your hopes, every single 
time come crashing in. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. So what the resurrection promises is the world with all of its beauty and none of its brokenness. Community without conflict. Beauty without brokenness. Feasting without fasting. To borrow a line from Sam in, in Lord of the Rings, it's a world where everything sad becomes untrue. And the resurrection points us to that. And so as we live in the brokenness and the painfulness of this world, we look forward to the day when Jesus makes all things new. You know, this morning we woke up, you may not have seen it, to the news that our Christian brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka gathering all over the country in different churches to celebrate the resurrection of Christ were, all, were, were attacked in a coordinated bomb attack, killing hundreds. Uh, our world is broken, and it can be so discouraging. But the hope of the resurrection is it will not always be this way. They will beat their swords into plowshares. The peace of Christ will reign over all things, and we live in anticipation of that day. Well, there's the hope and the proof of a new world, but the resurrection's proof of something else. It's also proof of redemption, proof of redemption. Look at verse 46. And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Bruce Shelley, a church historian, writes, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. The only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. But Jesus' life on earth does not end with his humiliation. It ends with his victory, doesn't it? It does not end with the cross. It ends with the empty tomb. It ends with the risen Lord. And so by raising Jesus from the dead... God the Father vindicates the Son, and he proves that everything Jesus said was true. The resurrection is God the Father's stamp of approval on Jesus, saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. What he has said is true. Listen to him. It's the proof of, 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 of who he is. Jesus, the crucified Savior, rose as the triumphant Lord and commands his followers here in this verse to go to all the nations and proclaim the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now that word repent is, a, is a, a church word you're familiar with, it, but you may not know what it means. To repent means to, to turn around, to stop the direction you're going and go the opposite direction. And in this case, to repent means to cease being your own boss, your own Lord saying, I'm gonna plot my own course, I'm gonna do what I want, instead to turn around and say, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm gonna follow him in faith, I'm gonna do what he says rather than what I think is best. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning around. And to, to repentance is a relinquishing of your control of your life to Jesus. And so repentance then is the essential proof of faith. Repentance is evidence that your faith is real. If you say, I believe in Jesus and that faith does not result in repentance, then that's not true faith because true faith always results in repentance. And so Jesus then says, whenever we repent, when we trust him enough to stop going our own way, enough to follow him, we have the forgiveness of sins. The gospel writer John in, in his first letter says, says, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what that means is, if we repent of our sins, if we turn to Jesus in faith, then he takes our sin and he washes them away and we bear our sin and our shame no more. It is gone. We are without spot, without blemish before God. Now this is, this is what's so amazing about this is this is not typically how things work. Think of, think of sin and your shame as something that's contagious, something that is, that is a, a disease, a sickness, a, a stain, a blot. And, and think about how that normally works. If, if you have a child that goes to school and they pick up the flu and they come home and yet the whole family is healthy, the child does not become healthy by hanging out with the family. What happens to the family? The family gets sick because of the child. You shake hands with someone who's got a communicable disease. Uh, they don't get well, you get sick. The, sick do, the, the healthy do not infect the sick, the sick infect the healthy. But with Jesus, evil works in reverse. With Jesus, it's, it's the exact opposite way. Whenever Jesus touched someone who was sick, what happened? Did he get sick? No, they got well. When Jesus touched the leper, the, the leper, he did not contract leprosy. Instead, the leprosy became clean. When Jesus touches us in our sin, he takes on our sin and we become righteous. We become holy. We become blameless in him. The sick get well. And the same is true with our sin, guilt, and shame. It's by coming to Jesus, the sinners are made righteous. Your shame is gone. Your guilt is gone. I'm a golf fan. I play every time I get, which is about once every other year, and um, uh, chance I get. And so, but last week I was, you know, watching the Masters, and and if you don't know, if you've been hiding out somewhere, uh, Tiger Woods won, and uh, it was uh, it was remarkable. Some are calling it the the greatest comeback in sports history. They're saying it is a a story of redemption, and, and it's understandable why. Uh, by the time Tiger Woods was only 33 years old, he had already won 14 of golf majors. He was well on his way to surpassing Jack Nicklaus as the greatest golfer of all time. And then in 2009, this all came literally to a crashing halt when he crashed his Cadillac Escalade in the middle of the night, fleeing from his wife who was smashing out the windows of his car with a golf club. She had just found out about his numerous uh, extramarital affairs. Things got worse from there. His personal life began to spiral out of control. His body began to break down. He had four back surgeries, and it got to be so bad that he was having trouble walking, much less swinging a golf club. Things reached rock bottom two years ago when he was found passed out in his car and arrested for DUI. It looked like the phenom who had taken golf by storm was finished. That's why it was so remarkable that Tiger Woods won the Masters last weekend. Some say that Tiger Woods found redemption at Augusta. And as far as golf goes, that, that may be true. However, a win at golf does not make up for the damage he has done to his wife, to his children, to his family, to his friends. You cannot find salvation with a nine iron. That's true for us as well. We are no different from Tiger. We've all sinned against others and we've sinned against God. Your success at work 
will not make up for it. All of your good deeds will not make up for it. Being more religious will not make up for it. You cannot redeem you. There's only one place where we can find redemption. It's in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who became the Son of Man, the crucified Savior who is the triumphant Lord, the risen Christ who ate fish with his disciples and promises one day to eat and drink with all those who are his. Because of Easter, no matter what your circumstances are at the moment or what your prospects are for tomorrow, you can live with hope. And this hope is not simply for a better job, a better retirement, or a better marriage. It's far more substantial than that. It's hope for redemption and the promise of a better world. And it's all certain because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do thank you that your resurrection is what gives us hope. We know, O oh Lord, even as Paul said, if Christ is not raised from the dead then we are without hope. But it's not just those of us who, who trust in you, it's there is no hope for the world at all. This morning, if you've come and you realize that you've never really repented before Christ, maybe you've said you believe in him, you acknowledge his existence, you, you even believe that he rose again from the dead, but, but you have not really trusted in him, not really. You've not put your faith in him enough to follow him, to obey him. And so you haven't trusted in him. I invite you even now to come to the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Come before him and say, Lord, I, I recognize I'm a sinner. I, I need redemption. And I realize that on my own, I, I cannot do this. I cannot make up for it. I cannot atone for the sins that I have done. But I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you did. I thank you that your death on the cross paid for the sins of everyone who had put their faith in you including me. And I thank you that I know it is true because you rose victoriously over sin and death. And so, Lord, I give to you my life. I want to follow you in faith. And so, Lord, make me yours. Fill me with your spirit that I can follow you and trust in you. And, Lord, I thank you that because of this, because of my faith in you, you have touched me. My guilt is gone. My shame is removed. And now I am yours. I am no longer what I was, but I am righteous because you have touched me. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.